don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergois. And recently I got into this show, had a total streaming moment with The Good Place, which is about this woman who dies and um, goes to The Good Place, only there's a catch. She's not supposed to be there. There's been some kind of mix-up. And it's a really funny show, hilarious in so many ways, and also kind of deep. And I found out recently that they actually have a philosopher, you know, come on as a consultant to help them make it, you know, about some of the bigger issues of uh, life and death, as well as being hilariously funny. So that philosopher is our guest today. His name is Todd May. He is a professor of philosopher at Clemson University in South Carolina, and he's written quite a few books. Uh, the ones we'll be talking about today are A Fragile Life, Accepting Our Vulnerability, and he also wrote a book called Death. So right up our alley. And what I can say about our conversation with Todd is that it was really fun. Uh, he's clearly committed to talking about philosophical terms in plain language that everyone can understand and engage with, and uh, his emphasis on practical philosophy that you can really live by, and in critiquing it and making it better is really inspiring. And he's very engaged with the world. Like I said, you know, he's right there on your Netflix, making shows funnier and deeper. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Todd May. So Todd May, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. Uh, you've written some books, you've written a whole course on death, but I thought we could start with, uh, I'm a big fan of the show you work on. It's called The Good Place. And maybe you could just share with our listeners um, who might not have seen it, what it's about and what your role is on the show. Okay, so let me, let me say something without destroying the plot for people who haven't seen it. The broad idea is that a woman dies, uh, she winds up in The Good Place, uh, she's not supposed to be there. Uh, she's supposed to be in the bad place, and she's trying to figure out how to stay there. And she meets someone who is introduced to her as her soulmate, and her soulmate is an ethics professor. So she's trying to get her ethics professor to teach her how to be good so she can stay in the good place. Uh, and it takes off from there and has some very unexpected twists and turns as the seasons uh, roll on. Yeah, it definitely does. It's so like smart and pithy. And you are the philosopher on staff, which it never even occurred to me a show could have a philosopher on staff. After watching this show, I feel like all shows should probably have a philosopher on staff. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that happened. Like, how did they decide we need a philosopher for this show? Right. And what it was like, what do you actually do to, to help them write the script? Sure, and and I and I should say this just just to to make sure that we're precise. Is I'm not technically on staff. I'm a consultant, right? And I'm not actually Hansa, the first consultant that they had. The first consultant they had was Pamela Hieronymi, who was at UCLA uh, when they were beginning to conceive the show. Right there in they're in LA as well. They talked to her about issues like the trolley problem, and she came in and talked to the writers. Uh, and I came in near the end of the first show uh, and then into the second show, and we've just developed a relationship through there. The way I came in was that one of the writers, uh, Dan Schofield, read my little book on death, recommended it to the show's creator, Mike Schur, and Mike read it and decided he wanted to follow up a little bit with some questions. 
uh, he phoned me or he emailed me uh, and suggested a phone call. The whole thing sounded so intriguing to me. I said, why don't we just Skype? And we wound up Skyping for a couple of hours. Uh, got along really well. Have had a series of Skyping since then. Uh, I've been with the writers uh, a year ago. In, a, in another week, I'm going to go back uh, and visit the writers and just basically talk to them about philosophical issues that they're thinking about and trying to construct the show. That's really, really cool. You know, I, I almost wonder why this doesn't happen more often, because when you actually think about it, these ideas are really like fundamental and interesting, and they add a lot to you know, both the entertainment and how the show kind of sticks with you afterward. Yeah, well, one of the things is that there is an image of philosophy, uh, often, by the way, reinforced by philosophers, that philosophy is an arcane and obscure subject that isn't really going to have a bearing on people's lives. And unfortunately, so many philosophers are specialized in what they do or see themselves as being specialized that they wind up just talking to themselves and to a very small audience rather than reaching out and talking publicly. It's something that I've always reject, tried to reject in my writings. And uh, although my early writings were more academic, the more I've written, the more I think, you know, these are issues and, and, and questions that everybody asks themselves. The difference is that philosophers will often ask themselves in a more rigorous way. And I mean, the good news for me is that we get paid to ask this stuff. So what I'm trying to do is, is write philosophy and talk about philosophy in ways that anybody who's curious about these issues can understand. And I think that was one of the reasons that the book, uh, my book on death appealed to them. So I actually read a different one of your books, but why don't you tell me a little bit about your book on death and what about it, you know, really uh, made it easy to relate to for these, you know, Hollywood writer types? We start from the fact that if, if I can say this on the show, the fundamental fact that we croak. Uh, and so we need, to, <laughs> we, we need to deal with that. And, and the book itself argues that although our croaking is bad for us, that not croaking would also be bad for us. Uh, if we were immortal, our lives would lose a sense of shape and urgency. Uh, South American writer uh, Borges wrote a, a book, I'm mean, sorry, a story called The Immortals. Uh, and in The Immortals, uh, he talks about a person who, unbeknownst to himself, he's looking for, for the land of the immortals and he finds it without knowing he did. But it's clear that the lives of the people in the land of the immortals is shapeless, that they don't care about anything because every, there's time for everything to happen. So if we think of death as, on the one hand, something that is frightening for us oftentimes, that's, that's difficult to deal with, we also should think about immortality that way. Uh, and that's the core of the book to ask, how do we live knowing that death both takes meaning away from our lives and yet at the same time in a different way offers meaning to our lives. I really, uh, I think I know about this story with, with Borges and I really um, like it. It's, uh, they basically are just bored, right? They, they have no urgency, no, no feelings about anything because it doesn't matter. Yes, yes. At, at one point, uh, I believe it is that, is it Homer that shows up that says, if you, if anybody lived long enough, everybody could write the Odyssey uh, because they would have infinite time and so infinite things would happen. So there's no rush for anything at all to occur. 
Right. It's almost like those 10,000 monkeys, given enough time, could write the complete works of Shakespeare idea that you will write everything that's possible that could be written if you choose to do any writing for an infinite amount of time. Right. And, and here, it's a, Hansa, it's that everybody can do it. Right. It's not simply that one group of folks is going to do it, but this is something everybody can do. And if that's the case, think of how much urgency and living is lost and how much uniqueness is lost. Yeah, I feel like I, you know, there are the people now who are trying to do this, by the way. Uh, they have reached out to me, like some Silicon Valley types who want to try to live forever, you know, um, and have different technical plans of how to do that. <laughs> I think they're kind of crazy. But I'm wondering what you think as a philosopher, like, let's say they pulled it off technically, like they were able to upload their consciousness into a computer, or, um, you know, solve all the problems the body ever had. What what could they expect? Well, I think what they would expect is that people would eventually just get really bored. I mean, th think of it this way, Hansa. I mean, take some of the things that you're most passionate about, uh, whether it's uh, it's playing music or some for some people it's certain kinds of foods. Uh, for other people, it's playing chess. For, for people like me, it's reading philosophy. And, and then imagine them doing it for a thousand years and then 10,000 years and then a million years. It just seems that at some point you're going to get saturated. Now, some people have told me, look, that may be the case, but people can do other things. They don't have to do those things. But people, as they grow older, and I don't mean old, but just as they emerge as people, they have certain interests. Some things are interesting to them, some things are not. If you offered me 10,000 years of, of fishing and bowling, I would, I would think, no, man, I, I'm just not there, <laughs> right? So, uh, that, that would I, be the bad place. That would, that would be the terrible place, right? <laughs> uh, and so it's, it just seems to me that once we realize how long immortality would last, that it's something that people themselves would, most of them would reject. So you mentioned in passing in the book I read that you once taught, you're, you're a professor and you teach philosophy, you once taught a class on death and that it was the best class you ever taught and you will never do it again because you were waking up in cold sweats at night. And I was wondering if you could just describe to me that. It sounded so intriguing and I, I wished I was like, you know, sitting there in the front row. Uh, so I was just, yeah, I'd love to hear about that experience. It, you know, it was it was an odd one. It was unexpected and, and it crept up on me. Uh, I just, I thought it would be a nice idea to teach a course on death because death is a, an important philosophical concern. Of course, I don't need to explain that to you. But the idea then was we got people together. Turns out everybody who was in the course, about 15 people had had me before. So they all knew me and they all knew one another. And that allowed us to sort of go deep in. And I started the course the very first day by asking them to write on a piece of paper. I said, nobody's going to see this, but write on a piece of paper four things that are really important to you in your life. And they all wrote the four things. Uh, and then uh, I said, OK, I want you to fold it up. And again, nobody's going to see it. Just pass it to me. Right. I said, I'm not going to see what they are. So I held these papers up and I said, okay, do you, are you all thinking about what's on this piece of paper, right? And then I tore all the paper up. And I said, that's what we're gonna be talking about, right? So you could sort of hear the collective gasp in the room. 
Uh, and I said, this is, if we're thinking about death, we're not going to think about it in an intellectual way. So we read a number of, of both novels and uh, philosophy. And we just found ourselves really confronting the fact that we were going to die. Uh, and there was one point we were reading uh, a novel by Jim Krejci. Hans, I don't know if you know Krejci's novel, Being Dead. Um, two people are murdered on the beach and it goes backwards through their lives and forwards through their decomposition. Uh, and we got to a point where people were just sitting in the room recognizing what would happen to them and nobody was saying anything. You know, that's reminds me of some of the like the Buddhist charnel ground meditations where you're really supposed to sit over a decomposing body for like weeks to months and just think my body will be like that body. He did that in sort of the form of a novel. Yeah, it, 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 he did. He What he did was he moved forward with the decomposition, which, of course, is what the reader is sitting with. But he moves backwards as well in alternating chapters, describing their lives backwards uh, up to the, you know, from early on in their relationship to later, and then sees the ambivalence that they have and yet the meaningfulness of their being together. So both the meaningfulness of their lives as flawed as their relationship is and what happens to them after death becomes salient as the novel's unfolding. That's really, sounds like a book I've got to add to my reading list. Thank you. So you said that, you know, it really started to creep up on you, that um, uh, it's got hard and painful. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, uh, it was it was something I hadn't expected. I mean, I thought, okay, I'm going to think about death. But uh, the emotional character of it was what I hadn't expected, that it would be something that wasn't that, that wouldn't leave me uh, and that clearly was carrying through into my sleep because I during some days I wasn't thinking about it at all. But then I would wake up oftentimes at night in this cold sweat uh, and I would have dreamed about dying. Uh, and that's what I mean in, in that it crept up on me. I didn't I wasn't looking for it. Right. It was finding me. Wow. And would you say that it left an impression like do you feel like you were different after that class than you were before when you really confronted these like deep lessons like tearing up all the papers of mm. you know you will lose everything you ever cared about or acquired but you know relationship everything like those sorts of lessons like you were there it was yeah. uncomfortable and then what yeah I, I i think it has left an impression it's it's now Hans, it's hard to tell because now this this was some years ago uh, i'm i'm you know almost 64 and this had to have been close to 15 years ago. So I'm confronting my death now in, in a way that's slightly different. I mean, I see my body isn't functioning in the way that it did 15 years ago. Uh, and so I can see intimations, we could say, of my own mortality. Uh, but when I do that, I, it does bring me back to the course and to the thought of where we went and why why I need to sort of be able to look at death, recognize it, and ask myself, okay, Todd, you're going to die. What's important? What is it that you need to do? Yeah, the the, the urgency question. Yep. You know, it's, it's interesting because when you look at the Stoics or the Buddhists, they have you look at death a lot in order to have more peace of mind. Um, and obviously it can have these uncomfortable moments, but it, they say, you know, it brings happiness. But for you, it sounds like it was very uncomfortable. And I read your book, A Fragile Life, Accepting Our Vulnerability. 
where you kind of open up a lot of critiques of, uh, you know, some of these sources, you know, the Marcus Aurelius's and Seneca's, as well as, you know, some of the Buddhist doctrine about how to become, as you say, invulnerable to a lot of the suffering of this world. Yeah. And I want to be, you know, if we transition into talking about that book, I want to be clear that there's much to admire in the traditions that I'm critiquing. This, It's one particular aspect of these traditions that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, that aspect of, of what I call the official doctrines, that you can somehow overcome suffering. And my critique isn't that we can't overcome suffering. For all I know, there are people who can. But my critique is I think most of us wouldn't want to overcome our vulnerability to suffering, which doesn't mean we want to suffer. But I don't think we want to be in certain situations where we don't suffer. So looking at this, like, how do you want to suffer? That, that sounds like one of those statements that's a little uh, Good. crazy. This is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the tricky part, right? I don't think anybody wants to suffer, but I think for most of us, the vulnerability to suffering in certain situations is intimately tied to our caring about things. So for instance, right, if one of my children were to die and, and I didn't find myself suffering, I would think there was something wrong, right? Something wrong with me, something lacking in my caring. Uh, the One of the images that I, I, I sometimes put forward to people is, do you remember when that Malaysian flight went down several years ago? Uh, it, was, it, it had disappeared and for months nobody knew what had happened to it. And people were gathering in the airport. The family members were gathering, waiting for news, and it went on and on and on. Uh, now, imagine, Hans, if somebody walks in and says to these people, look, I know you're suffering, but there's a way for you to stop suffering. There's a, there, are, there are doctrines you can follow that will relieve you of this suffering that you're engaged in now. I can't imagine hardly anybody would want to have, have taken those up, right? Not because they want to suffer, Right, but because their vulnerability to suffering and their caring are intimately tied up together. Yeah, obviously it would be rude to go up to a grieving person and, you know, tell them they don't have to suffer. They're they're having their experience. And at the same time, you, you I mean you you bring up the example of how you know Stoics had this practice of when they kissed their spouse or their child, they would remind themselves like you know, I'm kissing a mortal, you know, just to, you know, remind themselves that, you know, impermanence exists. And and I, I think in the book, I talk I, somewhere near the end about that we, we, we don't overcome or defeat suffering, but perhaps we can come to some sort of truce with it. Uh, and I think that's close, Hansa, to what you're talking about. But there are moments with the Stoics uh, and with uh, the... Taoists and with the Buddhists, where that official doctrine seems to bleed over into the idea that suffering is something that you can overcome, right? So I think I mentioned uh, at one point, this wasn't a Stoic general, but the Stoics held him up as an example. It's an earlier general in, a, in the Greek army whose son died in battle, and the news is brought to him that his son had died in battle. Uh, and he didn't react. And when they asked him, why are you grieving? Uh, he said, I always knew my son was mortal. Right? That's that's the side of 
the doctrines, right, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I get it that, you know, one wants to be more into that way. Um, you know, we want to be, we want people to cry over us when we die. There's actually professional mourners in some culture who really like will go show up and, and um, sob on demand for people. Like there's a, there's a, there's a need to, to mourn and to show that we care. And yet, I don't know, these practices, like the one of reminding yourself that, you know, people you love are mortal. Like I, I do them. I think they're really helpful. And, you know, I've had uh, sudden deaths uh, that were close to me, such as a mother who died of an aneurysm. And, you know, it really helps me to, um, of course, I know I'm going to suffer if my husband dies or someone else in my family dies suddenly. Mm. But by reminding myself that these things are true, that impermanence exists, I find that I have a little bit less anxiety and don't freak out as much when all of a sudden it comes back to me. Sort of that CBT idea that you just get used to the idea, you know it's coming, and so that you can have more strength and resilience when it happens. Yeah, and, and, and this I, I have no beef with. It. At the end of the book, I talk about two things, uh, what I call small matters and large matters. And the small matters, I think, these kinds of exercises are really helpful for things that you, even as you're undergoing the anxiety or the suffering, you know that you really shouldn't be doing it. It's not really worth it. Uh, and I say this to you as a control freak, right? Uh, who, who can be on a subway late for a meeting uh, and know there's nothing I can do. And, and, and I'm in the subway. So my phone isn't working and I can't reach them. And I'm, I'm quietly freaking out and realizing there's really nothing I can do and there's no point to freak out, right? I think some of these exercises are helpful for that. I also think they're helpful for some of the large matters, right? In which we, we, we can somehow recognize, say, the impermanence of life. But I think there's a difference between saying, uh, and I don't, here I think, Hansa, we're agreeing. I think it's a difference between saying that we can it, that these exercises can help us come to terms with some of our suffering, at least to a point, and saying these exercises can help us overcome the suffering. And it's that latter move that you see oftentimes in you see it in Stoic philosophy, you see it in Buddhist philosophy, you see it in Taoist philosophy. That's the that's the moment where I get off the train. No, I definitely agree with you that getting cold and not caring is a moment to get off the train. If if anyone's advocating that. I just often wonder if these are what the tools really do, just maybe because when I try them, that's not what they do for me. Um, you know, compassion, for example, it's mm -hmm. a big emphasis in Buddhism. And, you know, I think the reason it's so hard for people to do is that it kind of hurts, you know, to open your heart to people and to have compassion. And so how is that, you know, an invulnerable position, a, like a, a, a not having to suffer? Good. Well, the, I was, there's there's compassion and there's compassion. And, and, and if we're, if we're going to talk about Kanza, we should also distinguish with sort of two the two major traditions of Buddhism, right? Uh, uh, the the Theravada and the uh, the Mahayana, right? So the Theravada is less oriented toward compassion and more oriented toward individual overcoming of their existence, right? And uh, the Mahayana Buddhism is the one that's going to emphasize compassion, right? The Bodhisattva, instead of moving into nirvana, you know, instead of having the, the flame blown out, uh, turns back toward people 
uh, who are suffering and helps them to to overcome it because they're the, that bodhis the bodhisattva is further down the path. Right? Now, if we if we put it in that framework, then the compassion is coming from a place that is moving beyond right the ability or beyond the association of suffering with the compassion. So I think even in the structure of Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, you see a compassion that itself is embedded in a place that's moving beyond suffering. So it's not the compassion of, let's say, fellow suffering, but a compassion that has a certain, uh, I sometimes say that it secretes a certain distance between oneself and the suffering of the other person. Well, that doesn't sound like compassion, though, right? Once there's distance and the sort of, isn't that more like pity? I'm not sure I'd call it pity. Pity may involve a certain condescension uh, that I don't think that the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva necessarily has. Uh, but I, I think there there can be a space of compassion that isn't tied up with. Well, let's just say I, I think that there could be a space of compassion that doesn't necessarily require empathy. And, you know, you describe in this um, chapter on vulnerabilism, what you're arguing for, that you take a lot from these traditions, the Stoics, Absolutely. the Buddhists, that you really like, and it, but you want to leave the door open for suffering, that you yes. know, it's inevitable, and that you want to feel it, you want to care, you want to care with your whole heart, which I thought was beautiful, moving, and I found myself agreeing with you. And you said there were a lot of ways to, to do this, and I'm just kind of wondering how how you do it. You know, what, what parts of these philosophies do you take? Because I think a lot of people are interested in them right now. And how do you, you know, find the places to really care a lot and let yourself have the suffering that comes? Good. And, and, and it's right to say that, that there's a lot that I've drawn to uh, in, these, in these philosophies. I, I didn't take them up just to trash them. Right. Uh, I took them up because, and I think I said this somewhere earlier in the book, that they were meaningful for me, but there was always a certain discomfort that I had with them. But uh, I tried. To, I do try some of the exercises. Uh, I, I, I'm not a good meditator, basically, because I'm just completely hyper. Right. So. Uh, what well, kind of you tried, Todd? I, I've tried. I've tried sitting. Uh, uh, I've tried, I, I, I tried to do Tai Chi, uh, which I thought, okay, now I get to move at least. Right. Um, uh, but somehow I'm, you know, I, I, I have discipline for some things and this is, this is something I don't have discipline for. So what I try to do instead is take up sometimes a stoic exercise, which is you know, Seneca recommend, you know, in the morning, ask yourself, what are you going to do? Right. What do you want to accomplish today? What's important? What's not important? Uh, uh, I would like to also take up his other the, uh, his advice for the other end of the day, which is to ask yourself, OK, what did I do that was what I wanted to be doing? And what did I do that I wasn't? When did I, when did I get thrown off? Unfortunately, I tend to fall asleep at that moment. <laughs> so <laughs> so that that doesn't work quite as well as when I'm awake. Right. I try to take that up. Uh, I try to take up oftentimes the idea of living in the moment, uh, which is something that happens across this, uh, the different aspects of this tradition, right? Uh, and 
uh, will oftentimes ask myself when I'm feeling anxious, uh, is everything okay now? Is there anything wrong now at this moment in the present, right? Or are you worried about something that you can't do anything about now? Uh, and you can perhaps put that aside and worry about that later. So I, in an informal way, I take up a number of, uh, number of these exercises, uh, not necessarily with the, their, uh, the, with the metaphysical uh, framework that they come in, uh, but I take on a lot of the exercises themselves. And I want to say that I do, I, my ability to do it w ranges somewhere around mediocre. Which is your favorite? I think my favorite is probably, is there something wrong right now? Uh, that's the one I probably use the most. Where uh, do you get that that tool from? Oh, that comes from, oh, The Power of Now, the author I wrote on whose name Eckhart is- Tolle. That's it, Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. I read, when I read his the book, I was talking at times with some other philosophers about it, and they said, wait a minute, you're going to do Stoicism, and you're going to do Epicureanism, and you're going to do Taoism, you're going to do Buddhism, and you're going to do Eckhart Tolle? Where does he fit in? But I actually think he gets short shrift among philosophers, partly because his writing is so clear. So, <laughs> so, so, um, so I, I actually found that there was plenty of them when he, when he posed that question, it really struck me. Uh, and, and I've tried to stay with that question. And of course, he sees himself very much in this tradition that we're talking about. And so to use this tool that you, you've taken and find most useful, you just, in a moment of anxiety or just anytime, you just pose yourself this question, like one yeah. of those questions to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll get, Hans, I'm like, you know, I said I'm, I'm hyper, I get anxious. Uh, I get anxiety that I don't know where it's coming from. Uh, and, you know, the pit of my stomach starts to, to, to I don't do the thing that the pit of the stomach does. My, my pulse starts to quicken. Uh, my heartbeat becomes irregular and for reasons I have no idea about. And so those are moments where I just have to stop and say, okay, look, is there anything wrong right now? And almost invariably there isn't uh, because often when there is something wrong, you're trying to deal with it. Uh, you're not worried about how you're feeling. Uh, so yeah, those, that, that stood out for me and I, found, and I found that to be particularly helpful, right? Those are, dealing with anxiety now not necessarily in thinking about death that's i will say that's another issue yeah my I, having a question to ask yourself just to check in I actually do that too from a different place though um mine is a pema chodron quote that i just ask myself sometimes it's the one that uh considering death is certain but the time of death is uncertain what's the most important thing in this moment mm. And, but, but but it sounds like you you ask yourself that at times. But uh, if you don't mind my asking, right? It sounds as though you you do a more let's say rigorous and structured set of spiritual exercises as well. Well, I think I'm a little bit more um, into some of these tools of what you call the invulnerable list, the Stoics, the Buddhists. Not so much the Taoists, although I'm really interested in them. Not so much Eckhart Tolle, but other sort of modern ones. And, you know, that, that was one thing about your book that, you know, you, you mentioned that you thought most people wouldn't want, you know, wouldn't want to feel in, invulnerable. And 
I'm not sure like actually being invulnerable exists, but it's been my experience that the people who really dig into some of these, you know, they have they have hurt, they have trauma, they need them. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't live without them. I think another example might be uh, people in who call themselves sober are very much following something that you know rips a few pages right out of stoicism, and you know makes it so you can live a life uh, that otherwise would be impossible or difficult. And there's a lot of those people around. And I find that often when I talk to to Buddhists or uh, practicing Stoics, you know, there's usually real need there for a better way of life. Oh, I agree. And I, and I, and I don't think it's, it's even limited to these traditions. On Mondays during much of the semester, I teach uh, philosophy in a maximum security prison. Uh, I teach a couple of classes and those folks uh, are often holding on. They don't they, they don't get a whole lot of exposure to Buddhism or Taoism or things like that. Uh, but they do get a lot of exposure to particularly Christianity here in South Carolina. Uh, and a lot of them are holding on to that. Uh, and they know that if they began to doubt it, uh, that's, that their world would begin to fall apart for them. Uh, so I think having a a variety or one among a variety of spiritual traditions that people hold on to, I think is often, often is very important for them. Uh, and I didn't, see, I saw my role in the book, not so much to take all that away, but to give philosophical clarification for what might be some stuff that's realistic and helpful for most folks and what might be stuff that's going in a direction they might not want to endorse. Yeah, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, sometimes people are so sort of, like these days like they speak so earnestly and with like like such a hush about you know Eckhart Tolle or Buddhism or you know whatever thing that they found that's working a little bit for them um and they're not willing to critique them or really dig into where is this heading all of it in fact and does it make sense to endorse the whole thing so I, I found that very refreshing actually to take a more critical eye to some of the tools that I really love and that, you know, have a lot of cultural weight right now on them. Yeah, I, I think you're right. People well, people get involved in things and uh, there, there are good reasons they don't take them up critically, right? They, they've got lives to live. They have other things that are, that are urgent for them. Whereas what I do for a living is to try to think about things within a critical and self-reflective framework. Uh, so it's not something that I think, okay, you, you should have thought that this has implications that you may or may not want to endorse, right? But I thought, let me take up some of that work and try to div- distinguish between the elements that I think are helpful for most people uh, and elements that they, you know, they want to say, yeah, that's not actually where I, I'm headed. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening so far. And Hansa, I was wondering, might you care to share a favorite quote of yours from the WeCroak app? You'll never know everything about anything, especially something you love. And that is one of my great heroes, uh, Julia Child. One of my uh, mottos for life is one of her sayings, like, never explain, never apologize, just serve. (laughs) It's something (laughs) like that. I feel like that might be kind of emblematic of the uh, the WeCroak podcast and WeCroak app. We're uh, we're not trying to apologize. We're not trying to sugarcoat. We're just trying to give it to you straight as we and our lovely guests and um, the authors uh, see it. So thanks for thanks for putting up with us. 
Yeah, yeah five times a day plus some podcast episodes. <laughs> it's certainly not always easy. So thank you for, for believing in what we're trying to do and, and sticking with us as we continue to find our way throughout this, uh, this wide uh, and rough, seemingly rough world of ours. So how can people who are listening to the We Crook podcast or loving the app support what we're doing here? You know, the best and newest way to go about supporting us is checking out our Patreon page. We've got a link to it in the show notes of this podcast, as well as at our website, wecroak.com. There's a bunch of cool stuff in there. We put our latest announcements, all the podcast episodes are there. And, you know, if you have a couple extra pennies, we'd love your support as well. And if not, no worries. We're just happy to, to have you listen and to come along with us. Cool. So I hope you, uh, yeah, considered uh, helping out. And without further ado, here we are back to today's conversation. Yeah, and obviously you're an expert in a very particular part of philosophy, which is practical philosophy. Am I right? I, you know, Hans, I range around. I started in contemporary French philosophy, uh, reading some of the more obscure names uh, in uh, contemporary French philosophy, uh, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Jacques Derrida, uh, and gradually began to move over and start thinking about some of the issues perhaps that they'd raised uh, in more, I'm going to use in more pedestrian terms, right? And I think one of the reasons that I did that was when I went to graduate school, all these people were speaking this jargon. And I thought everybody knows what they're talking about except me, right? I'm the guy who doesn't know what's going on here. So I've got to be able to figure out a way to translate all of these ideas into words that I will understand. And so I did that. Uh, and that what I, and what I found out was that a lot of these people were not translating jargon into words they could understand because they couldn't, right? They, they were kind of, the jargon was holding the thought together. But once I had this, I had these thoughts in words I can understand, then the question is, okay, right? What, what can I do with this and how can I continue this? in a way that's gonna be helpful for people to think about alongside of me, because I'm thinking about these issues at the same time. I'm interested in that, because you're basically making a case that philosophy is for, for everybody, that these ideas can be put into regular speech that we can all understand, and they should be. And like, what, what do you think philosophy, like having an interest in the ideas that make up a world can give somebody who isn't a philosophy teacher? Like what? Why, why do you, you know, champion that idea? I, I think most of us are reflective on our lives at different points in them. Uh, we don't want to simply just go along with what we've been told or just, you know, we, we don't simply want to burn our days day after day and then look back and think, wow, uh, that's over. So we do want to gauge in periods of self-reflection. And I think a lot of philosophy is about self-reflection. I, I, I want to be careful, Hans. There are certainly philosophical issues that require abstract language, uh, logic, and some theory of knowledge and things like that. It's not that you can put all of it in everyday terms, but I think much more of it can come in everyday terms than people usually think. And so, I mean, 
think of the kinds of things, Hansa, that, that perhaps drew you to spiritual exercises. There, there were issues, as you mentioned earlier, there were issues of suffering for people. There are issues of people looking, say, at their lives and asking, is this what I want? Right. An old teacher of mine once said that if you think of life as crossing from one end of a uh, one bank of a stream to the other, he says at some point, right, you can see the far shore more clearly than the shore you set out from. And that moment, he says, you're going to start to think because, you know, it's it's half over. It's more than half over. I think we all go through that to one or almost all of us go through that to one extent or another. Right. Uh, well, I say almost all, you know, the ancient philosopher Aristotle, he would often preface his uh, uh, his his pronouncement by saying, well, in general and for the most part. Right. And I think that's probably the better part of wisdom. So in general and for the most part, we think about those issues. So what philosophy can offer uh, is a more a set of tools to think about it, a more rigorous way to think about it. When you read my book, uh, The Fragile Life, one of the things that you were doing was participating alongside a reflection that I had participated in. Uh, and I think that's that's something that philosophy can offer because I think it's something that people, almost everyone, wants to take up or finds themselves taking up at some point or another in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, what I found when I was reading your book, actually, is that I would confronted some of these things, like, you know, some of the examples you gave of the Stoics being pretty cold around suffering or grieving, uh, even shaming people for having grieving, if not being like good Stoics or something. And I sort of dismissed it, you know, just that eh, that's not really what it does or what these people are about. I'm going to like just dismiss that um, as those people didn't like do it right or didn't know what they were talking about. But it's a good reminder that you really need to engage. You know, if you want to do something well, you got to look at what you're doing and how other people do it in a way perhaps that you don't want. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I think that philosophy, if we think of it or to the extent that we think of it as just reflecting on ourselves, our lives, our worlds, who we want to be, who we ought to be, what a just world would look at, like, these, I think, are not arcane matters that only a small subset of people working in philosophy departments in universities think about. I think we all think about this. And because we, we think about this to one extent or another, right, philosophy just becomes a tool for us. Right? And what I can bring to the table is, a, we'll say, a more rigorous set of tools for no other reason right, that this is what I get paid to do day in and day out. So let's say you know, there's someone watching The Good Place and they, after the 10th twist and turn and, you know, talk on practical ethics, they just go, you know, oh my God, like I'm going to die too one day. And I think I'm wasting my life. I'm not being the good person I want to be. And they're, you know, not particularly academic or something like that, but want to start digging into some, some ideas for living, some philosophy. Where, where do you recommend that this person starts and do you have any advice for them as they sort of dig in? Good. Okay. Well, uh, uh, this is going to be a, a bit of shameless self-promotion, but I have a book on that. Uh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's called A Significant Life, Human Meaning in a Silent Universe, where I try to argue that one way to think about 
what would give meaning to our lives. And I don't, I don't say it's the only way by any means, but one way that philosophers have not talked about is that lives can have themes. A life can be spiritual or curious or intense or adventurous. And that this, these can be life themes that give a shape and meaning to a life. And one thing that as I was writing it, again, I tell you I'm, I'm, when I write, I'm thinking these issues through for myself, is that looking over the trajectory of my own life, I ask, well, what kinds of themes would I want characterizing my life? And in looking at that, right, the idea of these, these life themes, I call them narrative values because they, they're part of our life story. They began to emerge. But having said that about my own book, there's plenty else to read. The authors that we've been talking about, the Stoics, uh, Aurelius in particular, uh, is a person that moves me because Aurelius's meditations are not a preaching to somebody else, but his wrestling with his own life and trying to come up with an ability to be a better Stoic. So Aurelius's meditations, uh, Buddhist literature. I love Chuangzi. Uh, I know you said, Hansa, you don't read uh, Taoism as much, but Chuangzi strikes to me as, uh, I want to say, Buddhism with a great sense of humor. Uh, he's I, constant. I, I'm sorry? I like that about the, 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 the way or the Tao. It is pretty funny sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Chuangzi's writings are, are, are particularly funny that way. So, so reading, uh, reading Aurelius, reading Chuangzi, um, I think that Epicurus gets short stripped. I think Epicurus has plenty to tell us uh, about what might make a life meaningful. Although, in, in going back to you know the Buddhists and the Stoics and stuff, you know people have sort of skipped over Epicurus, and and uh, and I think that's I think that's a, a mistake. I think he's got uh, he's got plenty to offer. And of course, what, what can want, Epicurus give us that the Stoics cannot? Epicurus, I think, opens the door to a certain vulnerability that I think is, is one, he, he, he doesn't, he, I would say he opens, he doesn't walk through that door that he opens, but he opens the door to a certain vulnerability that I think sometimes will resonate with people more than some of the, the we could say, colder Stoic doctrines, right? So for Epicurus, you know, life is about simple pleasures sharing with friends. Right. And, you know, people talk about Epicureans because what Epicureans are the opposite of Epicurus. Right? Epicureans are the people who want the, the, the arcane pleasures. Right? But for Epicurus, he said, look, life can be really simple and it involves friendship. It involves recognizing that death is something that's going to happen, but you're not going to be there. So don't worry about it. And I think that because he looks at the importance of having simple pleasures, and the importance of friendships, and because those can be vulnerable to what happens in our lives, he opens that door to recognizing vulnerability. But again, he opens it, but he, in his own philosophy, he never walks through it. Yeah, one of the things I like to do when I'm looking at these is like think about like well, figure out like how these people actually lived at the time of their heyday. And you know, the Stoics were really cool. They had um, you know groups where you know they would be like emperors and things would be learning from former slaves because they were like better at this philosophy and like they had these camaraderies and friendships and it was like a you know like a, a meeting or something that, that was fun um and if you can correct me if i'm wrong but i remember reading about how the epicureans were kind of the original communes you know you would go off with your friends bake your own bread um try to live a simple life and just enjoy being together yeah there's a great article 
the uh, French philosopher of ancient philosophy, Pierre Hadot, wrote an article, I think it's just called Spiritual Exercises. Uh, and he said that for the ancients, unlike for us, for the ancients, to be a philosopher was not to spout a philosophical doctrine, and it was hardly about publishing in an obscure journal that nobody will read except perhaps three other philosophers. It was choosing to live in accordance with a, with a certain doctrine. So the philosopher was not the person who necessarily made up the doctrine. The philosopher was the person who took up a doctrine of living and lived with that doctrine. Uh, and that was ancient philosophy. And philosophy became more academic, right? I, I want to say somewhere in perhaps uh, the enlightenment or you know uh, post-enlightenment period. But to be a philosopher for the ancients was simply to do the thing that you believed should be done in, a, in the way of living your life. Yeah, so if you're thinking of being becoming an off-the-grid, you know, um, communal living person, you should read some Epicurus because they were really good at that. And if you want to be like a leader and still have like an ethical core and not get taken up with power, you should read the Stoics because they were pretty good at that. That's kind of what you were saying, like, you know, like what, what kind of life these people led. Yeah, and if you want to go into just deep and profound spiritual crisis all of a sudden, you should read Sartre's essay on existentialism. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite philosopher? I don't have a single favorite philosopher. Uh, I've been influenced in my thought by a number of them. I think my first deep philosophical love was a French philosopher named uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Uh, and... My second great philosophical love was the French philosopher Michel Foucault. But as I've gone into philosophy, I've fallen in love with parts of Aristotle. I've fallen in love with the writings actually of a contemporary philosopher, uh, Susan Wolfe at uh, University of North Carolina. She wrote a book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. And my book on meaning takes off from hers. So I, I want to say... My philosophical apprentices, apprenticeships were with first with uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty and then with Michel Foucault. Uh, and then as I sort of started being able to write in my own name uh, and with my own thoughts, I've taken up bits from Aristotle, uh, bits from Susan Wolfe, uh, and bits from other philosophers whose writings strike me in one way or the other. But no, right now, I suppose, well, I, would, I would put it this way, Hansa. I'm, I'm not divorced from any of these philosophers, uh, but I'm a bit single. <laughs> right, right. You're doing your own writing. You, you have uh, your own point of view. Yeah, that point of view has a lot of debts to a lot of people who are a lot better philosophers than I am. And so how are you thinking about uh, life and death and what's important now? Like, what's, what's, uh, what's the most important thing in your world today? Well, there's one obvious important thing. I have three kids. Uh, they're older now. They're all adults, right? And uh, a wife of 30-some years. These, these obviously are central to me. But it's a, another thing is that we, I think we live in a world right now, Hansa, that is characterized often by self-righteousness and outrage. And there are, there's plenty to be outraged about. But... I'm starting to think more rigorously about my obligation just to make the world a little bit better off, right? I mean, I've always done things like grassroots organizing and things like that, but 
when I feel like I'm getting caught up in outrage, I, I, I think it's important to, to step back and to ask, yeah, but not how can I add more outrage to a world that seems to have plenty of it already, but how can I do something that's going to make whatever it is that's causing the outrage better, that's going to improve it? And maybe I'm thinking about that in part because, you know, I'm in my mid-60s and I know that I have limited time left. Uh, but I think with one of the things that's really central to me now is to be able to exit the world. Well, if, you know, if I can't make the world better than it has been, at least a little bit better from my having been in it, if I could put it that way. That sounds like a, a beautiful preoccupation. I look forward to your next book about leading us through all this crazy outrage we've been experiencing, if not in ourselves, then all around us. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, 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 I have a book coming out on morality, which is, I think, going to address some of that, at least. Cool, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for uh, your time. Once again, uh, Todd May has a number of books we talked about on this podcast, including A Fragile Life, Accepting Our Vulnerability, A Significant Life, I'm sensing a theme, and, of course, a book just called Death, right? Yes, just called Death. And um, unlike, you know, some of those uh, obscure French philosophers are actually really easy to read and engaging despite having a high level of philosophical thought. So I recommend them. Uh, and thanks, Anze. And this, this has been just a delight on my end. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any ideas on how we could make our episodes better or ideas for new guests that we could have come on board, be sure to drop us an email or tweet at us. And until then, see you next time.